theyeshiva.net. The moment at last has arrived. The Jewish people are about to embark on their journey towards emancipation, liberation, and independence. Just a few days before they're about to leave, Hashem speaks to Moshe and Aaron, and He instructs them all of the mitzvahs, the detailed laws and instructions about the first Seder of Pesach they ought to create, they ought to make, the night before they would leave the country. Then, Moshe summons the elders of the Jewish people, and he gives over all of these instructions to them to communicate to the Jewish people. The first thing is, get flock, get sheep for each of the families, so you can offer the Passover offering. And he describes in detail how they should behave on that night. And then Moshe continues and he tells them, preserve this law for you and your children forever, ad oilam, for eternity. When you come to the land that Hashem will give you as He promised, continue to preserve this avoida, this system, this work. And then Moshe adds, and remember, this is the first speech Moshe is giving to the Jewish people, to the elders, the leaders of the Jewish people, just two weeks before Pesach, preparing them for the first time for the ultimate liberation. So Moshe says, and I quote, this is Shmois Perik Yud Beis, Pasuk Chavav, Exodus 12, 26, in Parshas Boy. V'hoya ki yomru aleichem b'neichem, moha avoida hazois lachem. And it shall happen, v'hoya, it shall happen, when your children will say to you, what is this service to you? So he starts over, Hoya, it shall be that when your children say to you, what is this Havoida to you? Vamartem, you should say to your children, this is a Pesach feast offering to Hashem, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but he saved our households. When Moshe finishes saying these words, the Torah says, Vayikoid ha'am, vayishtachavu. The people bowed their heads down and they prostrated themselves. They bowed and they prostrated themselves. And the next verse, the Jewish people went and they did as Hashem commanded Moshe and Aaron, so they did. In other words, they went, they purchased the sheep, they made all the preparations, and they followed through on all of the instructions, offering the sheep, eating it with the matzah, with the marah, placing the blood on their doors, and etc., all of the instructions. And then the next story is, midnight comes, and the final and tenth plague occurs, and Pare and his people expel the Jewish people from their land. Rashi is bothered by one detail. Moshe speaks to the Jewish people, they bow their heads and they prostrate themselves. Why? 
there are many conversations between Moshe and the people throughout the entire Chumash. Why so? They don't usually bow, they hear, and they go do. Or they argue, whatever their response is. Here they didn't argue, they just went and did it. Why did they bow their heads and prostrate themselves? So Rashi says, This wasn't just a piece of information or a mitzvah. This was the news of redemption. Moshe was giving them the instructions on the night preceding their geula, their exodus, after 210 years in a foreign land, many of those years under harsh and unbearable conditions of subjugation, suffering and enslavement with terrible decrees and edicts that the pharaohs uh, issued forth against the people, against the Bnei Yisrael, finally... This is not just you're going to be redeemed, it's happening. So when Moshe tells them all these mitzvahs to prepare the night on the night before the redemption, of course they bow their heads, of course they prostrate themselves. This is their way of expressing excitement, enthusiasm, gratitude, gratefulness for this moment at last. But then Rashi says, There's another piece of news. They're going to be coming to the land. Moshe tells them, you'll come to the land that God promised you, continue to do this avoida, which they did. Thousands of years later, every year in the night of Pesach, Jews universally, of course in the land of Israel, but everywhere else, conduct a Seder. Probably the most celebrated Jewish holiday, universally among all Jews. So that's the second piece of news. They're not just leaving Egypt. They're also coming to a land, the promised land. And then Rashi says, and one more piece of news, Upsuras habonim The news that they're going to have children. Moshe says, you'll come to the land, continue to do this avoida, and your children will tell you, what are you doing? Ma avoida Tell them what you're doing. It's a Pesach offering. For children to be able to ask these questions, what are you doing? You have to have children. So Rashi says, This was great news that they're going to have children. That is why when they hear Moshe's presentation, they bow their heads, they prostrate themselves on the ground in an expression of tremendous joy, festivity, ecstasy, celebration and gratitude on these three pieces of news that were just given to them. Number one, you're about to be liberated. Number two, you're actually going into the promised land. Number three, you will have children. Now the first two are easily comprehensible. We understand why they're celebrating. They're not taking this for granted, that they're being liberated or that they're going into a land. Yes, they were told generations ago that one day they're going to be liberated. And one day they're going to go back to their land. Moshe shared it with them in Egypt. But... As we say, now it's actually happening. It didn't happen yet, but it's about to happen. In a few days, this is Rishchidosh Nissen, only two weeks to go, and they're out. Incredible. The third explanation of Rashi, why they bow down, though, is a little diffi- is difficult to understand. The news that they're going to have children. Who is he addressing here? He is addressing here an entire nation, that as we know in Chumash numbered, 
600,000 males between 20 and 60. If you now count males under 20 and above 60, it's probably maybe double, almost double, a little more, a little less. Let's say it's double that amount, that would be 1.2 million. 600,000 you double, 1.2 million. Now include all of the women, not only from 20 to 60, from birth to above 60. You may have double that amount, or perhaps even more. If you have double that amount, so you're dealing with two. 24, 2.4, perhaps you had even more, as is often the case, and then you're dealing with something close to 3 million. There will also be Erev Rav, the Torah will say. Many Egyptians who want to come will join them. We don't know the numbers, but it looks like it was a large number. So you're dealing with anywhere between 2.5 million up north. Could be 3 million, 3.5 million. Again, we don't know the exact numbers. The title just gives us 600,000, 20, and 60. That's a large number of people. According to natural system of the world, when you have a nation of 3, 4 million people, they're going to have children. Somebody's going to have a child. This is true about the human race. It's true about the animal kingdom. Yes, if I could understand, if Moshe was speaking to one couple, and the couple was struggling with infertility, and Moshe Rabbeinu says, you know, one day when your children start complaining, they're like, really? We're going to have children? Awesome. When Moshe is now speaking to millions of Jews and telling them you're going to have children, what was the unique cause for celebration over something that's part of the natural process of the world? It happens with all nations, with all peoples. It's intrinsic to the human race, and not only the human race, the entire animal kingdom procreates naturally, not only the animal kingdom, the entire world of botany regenerates and procreates through the systems that are genetically ingrained in all vegetation and produce, trees and plants and bushes and herbs, etc. There is the process of reproduction, procreation, which we shouldn't take for granted. This is one of the great miracles of our planet. But it's part of the miracles of what we call the natural miracles of our planet, meaning it's a miracle that is part of the system of creation. When Moshe comes to three million Jews who have been slaves, or two and a half million Jews who have been slaves, and he says, you are going to be liberated. Ooh, this is a chiddish, this is novel. When he tells them you're going back to your homeland where your forefathers lived hundreds of years ago, this is a chiddish. This is a novel miracle. They're slaves. They have been deprived of all rights. Their children have been snatched from them and murdered. They have been subjected to slave labor and genocide. Now they're being emancipated. They bow down in gratitude. They're coming to the promised land. They bow down in gratitude. But Rashi says they heard they're going to have children. Was that a big Chiddush? First of all, they had children in Egypt. They had many children in Egypt. They multiplied tremendously, so they had children already before. They had children the whole time. Part of the Gzairah, the reason Paroi was so threatened by the Jewish people was because of the extraordinary amount of children they had and the extraordinary blessings they were given in birth, as it says in the beginning of Shmois, Pnei Yisrael, Paru, Vayishritzu, Vayirbu, Vayatzmu, they multiplied excessively. The earth, the land was filled with the Jewish people to the point that it was 
very became extremely difficult for Pare and his people to deal with it. So they were tremendously blessed with children in the exile, and Pare tried to stop it. With Shifra didn't work, with Pua didn't work, throwing in the mails to the river ultimately was obliter- also didn't work. They had children, they had plenty of children. They went out with many children. They went out with Taf, with children. You see it throughout the story. So first of all, it's not a Chiddush, they're going to have children. They had children now. Nobody was expecting it to stop. But even without that, when Moshe is telling millions of people you're going to have children, it's a beautiful thing, but it's not something unique and novel. And yet when they hear this, they bow down, they prostrate themselves as though they heard something unique, something special. And there's no need to put it in. It's not like we don't understand why they bow down. We already have two good reasons. Each one's sufficient. They're going to be liberated. They're going to come back to their land. And Rashi yet feels compelled to add one more thing. They heard they're going to have children. How do we understand this? What was the great Simcha here? The truth is, when you go a step deeper, you see how you could look at something from... You could look at something superficially, but when you reflect a bit deeper, a new world opens up. Because Moshe speaks about children, but he speaks about children in a particular context. He doesn't just say you're going to have children. He speaks about a conversation your children are going to have with you. He says, When your children are going to say to you four words, what is this service? What is this avoid? What is this work you're doing? Now you remember which child says this? <laughs> I don't want to remind you of Pesach that's coming up. So let's now remember when the, in the Haggadah there's a famous passage. And I want to explain to you this passage because people read the passage like, you know, we read a lot of things and we often don't reflect on the meaning of it. The Haggadah is a very interesting compilation. Most people are usually too tired at that point to focus on it. <laughs> and they're waiting for Shulchan Oirech. But the Haggadah is really a fascinating compilation. And there's a piece in the Haggadah that comes from the Mechilta. Very famous piece. Baruch HaMakayim, Baruch Hu. You remember probably the song, Blessed is Hashem, the Makayim. Blessed is He. Baruch Shenasan Torah Lama Yisrael, Baruch Hu. Kineged Arba Banim Dibre Torah addresses four different children. Echad Chacham, Echad Rasha, Echad Tam, Echad Shani There's the wise child, there's the rebellious child, there is the confused child, and there's a child who knows not what to ask. What does this mean, Kineged Arba Banam Dibre Torah? Torah speaks about four children. Where does Torah speak about four children? You could read through the whole Chumash, you won't find anywhere. The Chacham, the Rasha, the Tam, the Shani Yedeh this was a brilliant stroke of genius of the sages. Moshe Rabbeinu speaks to the Jewish people four times about conversations they're going to have with their children. Four times in Chumash, four different verses. The first one is still in Egypt. This is the verse, this is the first one. When your children will tell you, what are you doing? And the sages, when they read Chumash, were t- attentive, not only to every sentence, not only to every word, to every letter. 
literally attentive to every nuance, every, every um, cantillation, every one of the melodies, the nekudas, every detail, every nuance. Moshe says, when your children will tell you, what are you doing? You should say so and so. That's in Parshas Boy, they're still in Egypt. When you look a little further, they come out of Egypt. It's Pesach. And once they leave Egypt, Moshe speaks to them once again. And when he speaks to them again, he says, On that day, on that day, he tells them that every year they should follow these laws. You're going to come to Eretz Yisrael, seven, day, seven days eat matzahs, don't eat chametz, and tell your child that day that it's for this mitzvah that God took me out of Egypt. Again, he's talking about speaking to your child. Moshe continues further in the same speech after they came out of Egypt. When your child is going to ask you tomorrow, what is this? You should answer him. So we already have three times Moshe speaking about conversations with children. Three times. And then, 40 years later, when you go to Dvarim, Sefer Dvarim, Moshe Rabbeinu, speaks again about communication with children. Moshe Rabbeinu says in Dvarim, your child, your child is going to ask you, what are all the laws that God commanded you? And he gives the answer. So the sages wondered, why are there four times that he speaks about children? The answer is, he's not talking about the same child. That's the meaning, Keneged Arba Banim Dibra Torah. Torah addresses four different children. That's why Moshe says it four times. The order of the Haggadah is Chachem, Rasha, Tam, Sheini Yedei Elishal. The order in Chumash, though, is a very different order. The first one, they're associated with the Rasha. Because Moshe Rabbeinu says, When your children will tell you, What are you doing? Which in the Haggadah is put in the mouth of the Russia. Russia ma'oimer ma'avayda azoyis lachem. The second one, v'higada talavincha, they put into the she'eni yedei alishal, who doesn't know how to ask. So that's why you have to talk to him. At psachla, shenemar v'higada. The third one, v'hayoki yishol chavincha machaleimer mazoyis. Your child will say, "What's this?" They put into the mouth of the tam. And then the fourth one where the child asks in detail, what are the edus and the chukim and the mishpatim, the rabbis put into the mouth of the chacham, of the wise or developed or holy child, or a spiritual child, scholarly child, that in Dvarim they put that in the mouth of the chacham. Now we have to understand why the Haggadah, the order, is different than the order in Chumash. That's one big question. There's another question of when you look at the responses to each one of the four children, it's not exactly a replica of the responses that are in Chumash to each of the four children. That's a separate shir and a long discussion. But what is fascinating is that the first child that Moshe addresses is not the Chacham, not the Tam, not the Sheni Adelishal, but the one who is identified in the Haggadah as the Ben Rasha, as the rebellious child. Which... When we can understand that, and we hear his question, Maha Avoida Azois Lachem, 
Now you come back to Rashi, and Rashi says, why did the Jews bow their heads? Because they heard they're going to be redeemed, because they're going into the land, but because of a third reason. Because of the children that they're going to have. They heard now that they're going to have children. And we asked the question, what's the great Chiddush? When you have millions of people, somebody, most of them, are destined to have children. True. Children is a great blessing. And some people struggle with this, sadly and unfortunately. However, when you're dealing here with four million people, it's a part of Teva, part of nature. But we have to hear what these children are saying. These are children who are saying, What are you doing? The Haggadah identifies these children with the category of Russia. Not Chachem, not Tam, not She'eni Yedei So Rashi says, they heard this, they bowed down. They prostrated themselves. What's the Chiddush? Everybody has children. Most people have children. The word Vahoya, Chazal say when it says Vayihi, it could mean an expression of pain. When it says Vahoya, it's Lashen Simcha. It's a language of joy. Here Moshe says Vahoya kiyomru aleichem b'neichem ma'avayda It shall be Vayihi, it was, like Vayihi b'mei achashverish, loshen tsar, v'hoya loshen simcha. What's the logic of this? There are people who always talk about Vayihi, and it was. They don't live with the past, they live in the past. V'hoya means, it shall be. They focus on creating a future. So Chazal say, Vayihi is already bad news. You have to remember the past. You have to live with the past, but not in the past. Vahoya, you're focusing on what will be. Oh, this is already good news. This itself is a Lashon Simcha. Lashon Simcha. I once heard from the former chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Yisrael, Mayor Lau from Tel Aviv, that in the 1970s he once visited the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and uh, this was shortly after the Yom Kippur War, I think he said, and uh, in the middle of the conversation, the Rebbe asked him, Rav Lau, he said, Rabbi Lau, what's the situation in Eretz Yisrael? You have the finger on the pulse of the people in Israel. He was a very, he is a very popular uh, a Rav and leader and rabbi, very beloved by many segments of the Jewish people. So Rabbi Lau tells the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he says, Jews are saying, Vos zayn. It's a classic Yiddish uh, krechts. Vos zayn, Meaning, what's going to be? What's going to be? So he said, the Rebbe looked at him and said, By Yidin zoktmen ish vos zayn. By Yidin zoktmen vos ton. By Jews, the question ought to be, not what's going to be. What are we going to do? That's the difference between Vayihi and Vahoya. A person could look at a situation and say, oh, what's going to be? A different perspective is not what's going to be. 
what are we going to do about it? The first question is an innocent question, but it means that I'm part of the problem. The second question means I'm part of the solution. And there's only two types of questions you can ask in life. Questions that make you part of the problem, or questions that make you part of the solution. Whenever you ask a question, stop and ask yourself, is this question creating the problem, or adding to the problem, or is this question somehow contributing to the solution? If the question is adding to the problem, okay, that's vayihi. He says, by Jews, what am I going to do? One is passive, one is proactive. One is the question of a victim, one is the question of a leader. One is a question of fear and insecurity and paralysis and stagnation, and one is a question of creativity, determination, faith, positivity, optimism, and trust. The word that Moshe uses here is Vahaya. Vahaya is a Lashon Simcha. What's the Vahaya? When your children are going to say to you, Tati, Mommy, what are you doing? What's the grace of Simcha? I understand if the Chachem is sitting by the Seder and saying, Ah, Ah, Tati, Mommy, what an unbelievable Seder. You remember when your child did that? What an unbelievable Seder. We so appreciate how much work you put in to prepare this house for Pesach. Unbelievable. Where do you want us to sit? <laughs> Just tell me, because I would like to remain here in this seat for the next two and a half hours without moving. And where do you want me to hang up my coat? Sure. And can I help you clean up the dining room and the living room in the last moments before the Seder? Wow, you are an incredible mother. How you did this all, it's incredible, it's unbelievable. When I get older, I want to be just like you. In the meantime, consider me your sidekick, your viceroy. Whatever you need to get done in this house, I'm here. <laughs> I understand Vahoya, that I get. Moshe's not saying that. The first child he addresses is not the saintly, perfect impeccable, flawless, valedictorian. The one you deposited in preschool, and the next time you got a call from the principal was the day of graduation of high school. This is the child who the principal calls you three times a day about. Plus the teacher. V'hoya! The simcha! What's the simcha? It shall be! Let's hear what, Moshe? When your children are going to tell you, what are you doing? Ma, you have nothing better to do than clean your house. I don't really know what we're doing here. Okay, I'm just going to my room. And how do you see this? When they hear that their children are going to ask this question, they bow down. What are you bowing down? Rashi says, Psura Sabonim. No, it's not the Psura they're going to have children. That's not that they had children. Baruch Hashem. That miracle existed already. It will continue to exist. When you have millions of people, they have children. Somebody has children. It's part of creation. The Psura Sabonim is... The children are asking this question. And they're celebrating. They're bowing their heads down. What's the meaning of this? 
Now we understand Rashi, it's a big Chiddush what Rashi is saying. So Reb Tzadik HaKoyen of Lublin, one of the great spiritual Hasidic masters, the Rebbe of the city of Lublin was known as Reb Tzadik HaKoyen. And he, in his commentary on Chumash and in other Svarim of his, in Tzidka Satzadik and Pritzadik and other Svarim of his, he addresses this. And he explains it by introducing a fascinating statement of our sages in Tractate Sanhedrin, chapter 11. The Mishnah says, everybody knows, Kol Yisrael yesh lahem haba. All of the Jewish people have a part in Olam Haba, but then the Mishnah says, Ve'elu she'ein haba. There are those who forfeited their part in Olam Haba in the future world. And the Mishnah mentions three kings, and four three kings and four laymen. The three kings are Yeravam, Achav, and Menashe. The four Hedyotis, the four laymen, Bilam, Doyeg, Achisoifel, and Gechazi. Okay? The next few pages, the Gemara discusses all of these people and why they have such a unique status. Following all that, this is Sanhedrin, page uh, 90, uh, 90 uh, A, Tzadik Amaral of the Mishnah. A few pages the Gemara discusses this. And then the Gemara says, I'm going to quote, page 104, I think, Sanhedrin Kov Dalad, yeah. The Gemara says, Doshe Rishumo Hayu Oimrim. Kulon Bayin La'olam Haba. There were those who were doshe rishumais. They expounded hints. They said, everybody's coming to Elam Haba. Yeravam, Menashe, Achav, Doyeg, Achisoifel, Gechazi, they're all coming to Elam Haba. What's doshe rishumais? Rashi says, doshe psukim. They expound the nuances, the hints and verses. And they used to say, everybody ultimately will have a tikkun. Bal yidach mimenu nidach, nobody is going to be completely lost, every soul is going to be rectified. So the Mishnah says, they don't have a chelik in Elam Haba. That's like the standard. But the Dershi Rishumah said, they do have a chelik in Elam Haba. So Reb Tzadik asks, is this a contradiction? The Mishnah says not. The Mishnah couldn't know these psukim. The Mishnah didn't know the hints of the Pesukim. The Tana of the Mishnah didn't understand this. Are they just arguing about something? If they're just arguing why you call them Doshe Rishumas. And what's this expression, Doshe Rishumas? The word Rishumas comes from the word Roshim. Roshim, you know what a Roshim is? A, uh, an impression. A residue. That's one level. But Roshim also means a little sign. You make a Roshim. You say a person makes a Roshim, means makes an impact. But makes a Roshim can also mean you make a little line. You know, sometimes you're writing something, you don't have time to write a whole sentence. You write in short language, maybe you'll make an exclamation point, you'll underline a word, you'll write a word, what is it called? Uh, shorthand, or different simonim, sometimes just... For you, a simon, a mnemonic, for you to remember it. That's called a roishim. A roishim. When you look at it, 
Somebody else may not understand. Sometimes you're writing down a point from something you're hearing. Somebody else will read it, they won't understand it. It's completely non-eligible. They won't relate to it. But you who heard it, it's enough. A little roshim, a little hint, and that already contains the entire message, even though somebody else who looks at it may not see anything. But you look at it from a deeper perspective. We all know in life what associations are. Associations are two people could look at the same thing. For one person it's meaningless. For another person it triggers who knows what. Triggers, so I was Shabbos in Flatbush, so a father was telling me that he changed his son from one school to another school. And that school was the school he went to as a child and he hasn't been there for like 30 years. And he brought his child to this school in the middle of the year. It wasn't working out for him, so he brought him to this school. And he's a macho, self-confident, aggressive type of guy. Physically and psychologically, he has a stature and he's impressive and a very successful man. And he tells me he brings his son to school. And as he comes into the front door, he freezes and he starts sweating. And his wife is like, should I call out Salah? He says, no, 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 don't call out Salah. But he told me that it brought back, I'm laughing, he had flashbacks of a particular experience or experiences that he had in that place for quite a few years, extremely difficult. And they left a very deep impact on him. So there's people who walk into a building, they don't even notice, they walk up the steps. For him, this step wasn't a step. It wasn't a step. <laughs> the step was a whole life, that fl- a whole previous life that flashed there in front of his eyes. The step represented fear and dread and trauma. And I'm not going to elaborate on this, but you get the point. Two people come into the same house. They see the same thing. For one person, it's nothing. What, what, is, what, what, what happened? There's nothing here. It's a roshim. It's not explicit. It's not displayed in an open way. But somebody who appreciates, who's sensitive to the energy here, they see in this reality what other people don't see. Because of a unique experience, a unique understanding, a unique relationship, a unique past, whatever it may be. This is true positive, negative, it's also true positive. Rishumois means you look at something, and where other people can't see it, you can see something. Even though it's only a roshem, there's only a little sign, there's only a little simen. It's shorthand, somebody else reads it, they don't see this. Those who know how to study the roshem, of souls said, Yeshlam Chelek Lailam Haba. Why? What does this mean? Whenever you look at a person, you could look and see two separate things. You could look at the surface. And the surface is true. You could look at a person's behavior. You could listen to a person's words. You could see a person's body language. And you could look at a person's day-to-day conduct. And you see reality, you see truth. And then you may reach certain conclusions based on what you see. When you're studying these personalities, how can they have a They forfeited, they detached themselves from the divine. They don't have a chelik in 
but people who could see things on a much deeper level, even if it's not articulated clearly in words, they're sensitive to vibrations of the soul, they're attuned to the subconscious layers of the human psyche, they see what is happening in the sub sub of the human condition, the human heart, the human existence, they could see that even if something externally is articulated in one way, on a deeper level, there may be a whole deeper dimension going on that may not be revealed to the person who is not one of those Doyoshe Rishumas. Take for example Menashe. Menashe was a king for 55 years. He was one of the most evil Jewish kings. He murdered his grandfather. And it wasn't just a grandfather. His name was Yeshaya Hanavi. And how did he become his grandfather? Menashe had a father whose name was Chizkiya. Chizkiya was a tzaddik. He even had foresight. And he did not want to get married. You know why? He saw what his offspring is going to look like. He becomes sick. And God sends the prophet Yeshaya to him and tell him, you have to get married, you have to have children. Chizkiya says, you want me to have children? You know what that child is going to look like? Trust me. It's better if I die without a Kaddish. You'll say Kaddish for me. Those weren't his words, but that was the theme. And Yeshaya told him five words. Bahadi kafshi Don't get involved in the mysteries of creation. God told you to have children, you have children. Your job is not to predict the future of civilization. Let God do His work, you do your work. You were charged with the mission of having children, have children. So Yechachiskia was a smart man. He said, okay, give me your daughter. He thought, you know, with her brains and his looks, <laughs> so to speak, at least there'll be more chances. Yeshaya Anovi's daughter, if she's the mother of this kid, no, how bad can it be? The apple doesn't fall so far from the tree, even if it falls far from the tree. Melami, a combination of him and Yeshaya Anavi's daughter, the best stock. And the Gemara says, and it still didn't help. Menashe, Chizkiah was right. Chizkiah was right. The man was a destructive force. But he had a son, Chizkiah. He had a son, Menashe, whose father was a great tzaddik. 55 years at the end of his life, Menashe is captured by the Babylonians. He calls out to all of his gods, and then he decides, you know what? Maybe my father's olive base was right. He decides to do tshuva. And the Gemara says in Sanhedrin, the angels told God, there's always an exception. He's not allowed to do tshuva. He is not accepted. They would not let Menashe's soul come to the Rebbeinu Shalom. So the Gemara says, what did Hashem do? One of the greatest stories. God dug a tunnel under his throne to sneak Menashe in. You read this Gemara and you're like, really in heaven the Gaboyim also run the show? <laughs> I thought with God there's a little uh, 
a little democracy, a little justice. Really, the Malachim say, no, no. We decide who comes in, who doesn't come. Hashem has to imagine. God has to dig a tunnel so they don't notice. <laughs> what, he's scared of his Malachim? You hire them, you create them, and then they tell you what to do. We know how it works down here on earth. It's called getting to know the right people. We thought in heaven is a place of truth. It's called Oilam Ames. There's no nepotism. There's no protectia. There's no deception. There's no chanifa. Turns out it's not so simple. I was once at a funeral, and one of the Hevra Kadisha, one of the Hevra who goes down, was somebody didn't really didn't like him. So when he comes back up from the hole, the guy says, you know, I feel so bad for everybody who dies in this community. It's not enough they have to live with you. Even after they're dead, the last person they have to see is you. What a great compliment. So I ask you, finally in this world of truth, God says, sorry, I'm not in control here. The Malachim run the show. You know what? We're going to dig a tunnel. What is going on here? What is going on? The pshat is, of course, the malachim are right. Menashe can't do tshuva. He's become too detached. The tunnel that God creates represents something. In order to find Menashe's relationship with God, you have to dig a tunnel. You have to go beneath the earth. You have to go deep, deep, deep into the core of his neshama. With even the malachim, they don't have a tfisa, they don't have a sensitivity to it. They weren't trained for this. They see things the way they are. That's why they can't deal with this world. Because this world, nothing is the way it looks. In this world, nothing is the way it looks. That's why you cover your eyes by Shema Yisrael. In this world, you have to have the courage to be able to look at a world that on one level it screams. There's no meaning. There's absolute chaos. There's endless pain, endless suffering, endless politics, endless injustice. And to be able to dig a tunnel and say beneath all of that is Einoid Mulvadoy. That's only in this world. The Malachim don't know this. They see reality and what you see is what you get. And what you get is what you see. That's why when the angels were sent down here one time in history, God is like, never again. Because in Parshas Bereshis, Hanefilim Hoyu Ba'aritz, they came down, they fell, they completely fell. An angel is very good in heaven. You send an angel down to earth, he or she has no resources to be able to deal with the crusts of earth. The angel doesn't know how to take a shovel or a hoe or a tractor and dig and dig and dig and excavate and find the Be'er Mayim Chayim, the living wellsprings of water that pulsate and flow beneath layers of debris and dirt and earth and stones and pebbles and filth and rubble, etc. If you look at Menashe, those who understand the Roshim, they could see a Roshim of godliness in a person, even though the person doesn't even know how to articulate it. The person doesn't even know how to express it in words. But the roishim is there, the residue is there. They say, of course, yesh lechelek l'adam haba. It's not a contradiction. One is addressing the nigla of the person, one is addressing the nister of the person. The outer and the inner. There's always in everything, the chitzon and the pnimi, the external and the internal. Take Yeravam. Yeravam was what you call 
a true tzatzka, what he did. As your grandmother would say about certain people. Your Rav ben Nevat is a man who was a genius of a person. The Gemara says in Sanhedrin 103, he was the greatest gone of his generation. And yet he created two golden calves. He influenced the nation to become entrenched in idolatry. He closed the pathways to Yerushalayim. In many ways, he was a very evil king. What do we say in Perkeyavis? They didn't only sin himself. He caused the nation to sin. Which is a different level of, 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 of sinfulness. person does what they do on their own, they do on their own. He created a certain movement in the nation and the people. And he was essentially a great person. So the Rambam writes in Igeris Taman, there's a famous letter the Rambam writes to the community of Yemenite Jews who were forced by the Almohads to choose Islam or death. So many converted to Islam, superficially. And there was a rabbi who wrote a letter that these Jews who converted to Islam are not Jews anymore. And they shouldn't even come to Shulim Kippur, and they shouldn't make brachas, they shouldn't daven, they shouldn't have a seder, because they're the worst of the worst. And the Rambam, in one of his most extraordinary pieces of writing, has a 40-50 page letter criticizing this rabbi who wrote this about these Jews who converted to Islam under coercion because they wanted to live. It's an extraordinary letter. And the Rambam says, whoever put it into the mind of a person, that just because, first of all the Rambam says, Islam is not idolatry, because unlike Christianity, Islam is a monotheistic religion, it doesn't believe in Trinity, so therefore it's not Avodah Zarah, and they're not mechuyiv to die. If, someday, if they're forced to say that Muhammad is a real prophet and they have to go into the mosque, the Ramam says you don't, somebody may die for it, but you don't have to die. And therefore, they should try to move out. But those who did it out of coercion, they're Jews and they're beloved and every mitzvah is precious and they could continue to daven. It's an extraordinary piece of the Rambam. You see you know, a Jewish leader, a lover of the Jewish people, somebody who's really sensitive to the reality of what's going on. So the Rambam has an expression and he says, even Yeravim Benavot, who was considered one of the greatest sinners of Jewish history, he will be punished not only for creating idolatry in the Jewish world and creating two golden calves, but also for cooking on Yom Tif, for cooking on Friday, Erev Shabbos, Yom Tif, for Shabbos, without making an Erev Tafshilin. <laughs> That's what the Rambam says. Yeravim ben Nevat will be punished for not making an Erev Tafshilin. Okay, so you look at the Rambam, and you're like, this is interesting. It's interesting. You know, a guy... Kill somebody else. In the process, he steals a can of Coke. And he drinks it. You say, by the way, you got to pay back for the Coke too. I mean, yeah, why not? Just because he killed somebody doesn't mean he's not responsible to pay for the Coke. But the Rambam is saying something big. And that is, the Navi says, the Navi Amoy says, Kirak eschem yadati mikol mishpachos ha'adama alken efkod aleichem kalavaneseichem. It's only you that I loved from all the nations of the earth, and therefore I remember all of your sins. A sin can only be meaningful if there's a relationship. Think, for example, in terms of a marriage. If a bachelor, somebody who's not married, leaves the country for three months, he goes backpacking in India, Japan, Thailand, China, New Zealand, and the Philippines. Right? Fine. You want to go for four months? Go for four months. 
stay safe, eat healthy, and enjoy life. But if somebody who's married, and he gets on a plane with a backpack, and he starts backpacking through the Himalayas and Mount Everest, and then goes through the Philippines and Nepal, without telling, without getting permission from a spouse, this is a whole different situation. Even if your husband doesn't return a call or a text, right? After some time, it gets aggravating. Why? The answer is because when I'm in a relationship with somebody, my behavior affects them. If I am married, if I'm in any type of relationship with somebody, the closer the relationship, the more the impact. You can't compare the relationship, for example, of siblings to the relationship of spouses. A very famous big therapist once told me, very insightful message. He said to me, he says, I see my brother once a month. Average once in three weeks, once a month. He says, when I meet my brother a month later, we pick up where we were a month earlier. Nothing changed in between. We met a month ago. We meet a month later at Samalava Malka or whatever. And we pick up from where we were a month ago without any change. He says with his wife, he says with a marriage, with a marriage, he says if, with, if within every three hours there's no connection, there's already drifting away. Why? Because the relationship is so deep, the expectation of each party from the other one emotionally is so profound, that if for three hours there's absolutely no connection, there's already a little bit of drifting. It can be repaired fast, it's not the end of the world, it's not the crisis of the century. But it means essentially it's a type of relationship that every three hours they have to feel that they could lean on the other person. They have somebody to fall into their arms. They have somebody they can trust. It's a different level of a relationship. The deeper the relationship, the more the betrayal when I neglect it. So God says through the prophet Amos, you I love from all the nations, therefore I remember all of your sins. Your sins hurt. Somebody else, a person who's not married, fine, you could disappear from the planet for three, you could, not from the planet, you can disappear from the house, your house for six years. I mean, your grandmother and mother will worry. But who cares about that? And if you don't have somebody to worry, then mamish nobody. When somebody's in a relationship, whatever the relationship is, a spouse, a parent, a child, a close friend, I can't just disappear and say, it's none of your business. It is my business. I love you. You affect me. The whole Torah mitzvah is based on a relationship. I love you from all the nations. So if you, for example, cook on Shabbos, it hurts. You're violating my intimate day. You're not a stranger. You're coming into my intimate day and you're violating it. You cook on Yom Tif for Shabbos without an aid of Tafshilin. It hurts. You would think for this, you have to be connected. What happens if a couple gets divorced? He doesn't have to call his ex and say, by the way, I'm going backpacking. I mean, unless there's some arrangements with children or whatever, technically. But essentially he doesn't have to do that. Why not? There's no relationship. They're cut off. You would think Yeravim ben Avat was such a sinner. Who cares if he cooks without a native tafshilin or not? As Abkishnitin, he's cut off. The relationship is severed. Cook how much you want on Yom Tif. What do I care? There's no connection anymore. Comes the Rambam and says, no. Yeravim ben Avat will be punished also for Erev Tavshilin. Why? 
Vu abgeschnitten, wenn abgeschnitten. Deutsche Rishumois. If you dig a tunnel, you understand that you can't separate a soul from God. Every neshama is one with Atzmus Ein Soif Baruch Every soul is one with God in His essence. And therefore, even if on every conscious level, and conscious display, there is a separation, and the court is severed, and when you look at this person, you say, And that's why the Rambam says, also hurts. The fact that he cooks on Yom Tov without an Erev Tavshilin is a sensitivity, Tasha. It matters. It's meaningful. It's significant. It's a betrayal of our intimacy. It's a betrayal. Yom Tov and Shabbos are days of intimacy. You don't come into intimacy with a flaffle and sauerkraut. Or a laffle and barbecue sauce. That you keep outside. Shabbos and Yom Tov are intimate days. It's a betrayal of that. Even with your oven benavot. That's what the Rambam is saying. For this you have to be a Rishumais. So Moshe Rabbeinu now comes to the Jewish people. They're leaving Egypt. They're going into Eretz Yisrael. V'hoya. Aloshin Simcha. When Yeshuchiskiyah has Menashe, he told Yeshaya, I don't want to have a child. Yeshaya said, don't get mixed into God's secrets. He has the child. He's right. The child is destructive. At the end, the child does tshuva. And as Reb Tzaddik says, Mashiach ben David, Mashiach, comes from whom? Comes from Menashe. That means if Menashe wouldn't have been born, Mashiach can't come into the world. So Yeshaya Navi told Chizkiah, don't mix in to where you don't have to mix in. There's what you have to do, and then there's things that you know a little bit, and you don't know much more. Mashiach ultimately comes from Chizkiah. That's what he meant. You don't know the secrets. It's not just don't mix into God's secrets because it's none of your business. It's that there are journeys of souls that defy anybody's logical construct and conscious comprehensions. For this, you have to be a maven on Rishumois. Rishumois means secrets that are not articulated clearly. There was a Yid, a Chassid, his name was Reb Menachem Manish Mozenson. He was a very successful diamond connoisseur and merchant. He was also a Talmud Chacham, a Ben a Skali, he was a great Baltstoka, a Balchesed. He used to come once a year to his Rebbe. His Rebbe was the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe known as the Rebbe Rashab, Reb Sholem Ber, passed away in 1920 in Russia. And he would bring him every year his most beautiful diamond as a gift to be able to give for tzedakah. Whatever his tzedakah, the Rebbe's tzedakah he wanted, he would get his most beautiful diamond, he would give as a gift to be distributed for charity, according to the Rebbe's wishes. One year he came, and before he went into the Rebbe, before Yom Tov, somebody else went in. And that man stayed for a very long time. And then he went in just for a few minutes, and the audience was over. And he felt very bad because he knew the person in front of him and he was a simpleton. Nice man, a God to remember, but very, very simple. He was a scholar and he was multifaceted and multilayered and successful in different arenas and an activist and a very successful man and a Talmud Chachem. And he felt that this was uh, un- inappropriate, unjust, whatever the word is. Disparity, the disparity perturbed him. 
So, when you have a close relationship with somebody, the worst thing is not to bring up uh, hurt. Huh? Your grievances. Repressing things don't make them uh, go away, even though we wish they would. We still hope for it to go away. And uh, the definition of insanity is when you do the same thing again and again. And uh, you expect changes, even though you're repeating the same patterns. So especially when you have a close relationship. So when he went into the Rebbe after Yom Tev, he said, I have to share something that emotionally I'm upset. I'm upset at the Rebbe. This person is a fine Jew, sits with the Rebbe a long time. I come in, in and out, I felt upset. And how could you compare me to him? So the Rebbe listened and he didn't say a word. He didn't answer. He listened. After the conversation, he was about to go. So he says, and this year I brought you the best diamond ever. And he takes out a selection of diamonds. And uh, he points to the greatest, uh, the best, the most dazzling in its brilliance and glitter. And the Rebbe points to another one and he says, that this one is nicer than this one. I think the other one is nicer. He says, nay, you can't compare this goes for 5,000 rubles, this goes for 60,000 rubles. You can't compare. So the Rebbe picks up the expensive one, the 60,000 ruble one, or whatever the price was. He looks at it. He turns it over. Azoi, azoi, azoi. He looks, looks close. godless. I don't see any special beauty in this diamond. So he says, look at this, notice this, focus on this. The Rebbe looks, he says, Ichzenisht. I don't see so a little frustrated at some point. He says, Rebbe, On a diamond you have to be a connoisseur. You have to be an expert. With all due respect, you're a big Rebbe. But you're not a diamond expert. So the Rebbe smiled and he said, And on a soul you also have to be an expert. And with all due respect, you're a great diamond connoisseur. But you're not a soul connoisseur. And if somebody is not a maven on a shama, they have to be humble and say, this is not for me. One person doesn't mix into diamonds, another person shouldn't mix into neshamas. I have to be able to say, this is not for me. I don't know how to deal with it. I get annoyed, frustrated, overwhelmed. I just can't deal with this. I don't understand. I'm not tuned in to the layers of the human soul, of the human heart. So Moshe speaks to the Jewish people as they're going about to leave Egypt. He says, there's going to be a simcha. What's the simcha? You're going to have children who are not the Chachamim. We know that the Chachamim bring joy. I'm talking here about the first child. The child who's going to say, What in the world are you doing? You're really primitive. You really belong in the Stone Age. You're really, really old-fashioned. You're archaic. Mom, you got to wake up and smell the coffee. You got to dance to the beat, to the rhythm of contemporary life. 
You come from a different world, from a different planet. You may mean well and don't start crying on me. It's time to become a little relevant to the real world. Ma, when all one word, ma, one sentence. Ma, voida, Can't say it better. First of all, it's hard work. It's avoida and it's lachem. As the Haggadah says, lachem v'loy And the Jews hear this, and what do they do? They all bow down. Imagine four million people bow down. Yay! Thank you, Moshe! Rashi says, Psurus Habonim! What's the Psurus Habonim? The Psurus Habonim is that Moshe was telling them, Vahoya! What's the Vahoya? What's the Psurus Habonim? What's the great Psurus? Why are they bowing down on hearing that this is what their child is going to ask? The answer is, Baruch HaMakayim, Baruch Hu. Baruch Shanos Yisrael, Baruch Hu. How does that sentence come in there? What do we suddenly We need a song? So we need it, Baruch HaMakayim. How does it come in there? The four expressions of Baruch are the four children. Baruch HaMakayim is the Chachem. What's Makayim? Makayim is space. Space is articulated. Here we're in a space. Baruch HaMakim is the way God is manifested in a space. What's who? Who is always? Third person. Lashen Nister. Baruch Hu. You can't see him. If somebody is here, you say Baruch Ata. If somebody is far away, you say who? He. Or in the feminine, he. She. Or who? Or in a pile of Yiddish, both are he, he. But I do a Lithuanian Yiddish, so we do who and he. But you get the point. I don't know if you say it over to your husband, he won't know what you're talking about. That's what I'm saying. Baruchi, Baruchi. But I'm doing the way into Lithuanian, so I say Baruchu, Baruchi. But the same point. When you say who or he, it's called Lashen Nister in Hebrew grammar. It's concealed. Baruchamokoim. It's the way the divine is manifested in a child. Baruchu means. The divine may be concealed. But concealed doesn't mean it's not here. Concealed means you have to dig a tunnel. You can't look at the superficial. So Moshe Rabbeinu is telling all of the Jewish people forever. When your child says, Don't think that the question is coming because there's no relationship. The question is coming because there's a very, very deep relationship. But the depth of the relationship is sometimes manifested in anger, in pain, in loneliness, in torment, in frustration, in annoyance, in apathy, indifference. But don't think that these children are disconnected. Because there's no such a thing as a child disconnected. When the Jewish people heard this, Psuras Habonim, they didn't just say they're going to have children. They heard that they heard what type of children they're going to have. Never ever will they have a child who's really separated, who's really severed, who's really detached. And even if at the surface the child is screaming, that's a surface expression. If you go deeper, there's a very powerful, wholesome purity and sanctity. Because the soul is a piece of the divine and that could never ever change or cease. That's why the Haggadah put in a fascinating message. 
Afato hake eshinov. You remember what does hake eshinov mean? Blunt his teeth. Some people say knock out his teeth. You think that would be nice at a seder table? Your son says, "What are you doing?" Whack. Great education. Afata hake eshinov. Hake eshinov means blunt his teeth. Blunt his teeth means somebody sometimes speaks. And the bite is very, very hard. And people get annoyed from the sharpness. And they can't hear the person anymore. They're responding to the teeth, not to the soul. And whenever you respond to the teeth, not to the soul, you're losing the person. Now, it's painful for us. When somebody bites me, it hurts. So by instinct, I fight back. Fight or flight. We do that with our kids all the time. So the Haggadah says, take a deep breath. Connect to God. Connect to your soul. Connect to His soul. Don't look at the teeth. What do we say? We say the bark is bigger than the bite. Here we say the bite is not as big as the soul. Get beyond the the derision, the cynical words, the biting words. Teenagers know how to tell things to their mother that turns over their kishkas for three and a half decades. The 17, they know exactly what to say in the right time. And you're in your room for the next three weeks reflecting, regurgitating the expression. As he moves on with his life. Hakni is shinov. You gotta know how to distinguish between the teeth and what is behind the teeth. The Vilnagon says, Shinov is shin, nun, yud, vav. The Gematria, 366. You're tired, okay. Russia, Russia, you with me? 366. Russia is 570. Afata Hakeyas Shinov. Take out Shinov, take out three hundred and and sixty-six from five hundred and seventy, and you'll end up with Tzadik. Tzadik Dalid Yud Kuf, which is two hundred and four. You could take out your calculators and do the math. In other words, what? So what is he saying? Take out the shin of the teeth. And the Russia is Nishtaza Russia. For this, the Jews bow down. This was a Lashon Semcha. This was a Psura. That never ever will there be a Jewish child that you have to give up on. Never ever will there be a Jewish child who when he or she says, you have to expel them from your life. From your, ma- from your home, from your family. Never ever will there be a Jewish child that you have to sever cords with absolutely and completely and say, there is no hope. This is fafalan. This is finished. This is just, this is not a Jewish kid. I don't know how he was born into my family. Maybe he was adopted. I don't know. Some strange genes. Vahaya. This was Psura Sabanim. Together with the Gula, together with the land, they heard something special about their children. This is what Moshe told them. Reb Tzadik of Lublin explains. Just yesterday, 
I got an email from somebody, a Baba Vachasid, and it was a very meaningful, uh, a very meaningful uh, episode that he uh, shared with me. His name is Rabbi Quadrat from Antwerp. Been seeing Quadrat from Antwerp, and his father, he's a Baba Vachasid, and his father was a Talmud, a student of the Kedusha Tzion. Rabbi Tzion Halberstam, the Baba Virav, who was shot, he was killed during the Holocaust, during the Second World War. And uh, before the war, he was in Babiv. Babiv is in Galicia, in eastern Poland. He had a huge, huge yeshiva. And he was a very, very big rebbe. Most of Babiv was wiped out. His son, Reb Naftali, Reb Shloyma, um, uh, survived the war. And he rebuilt Babiv after the Second World War. He passed away in 2000 and was succeeded by his son, Reb Naftali. So this Babiv Echaseh told me that he heard this story from his father, who was a Talmud by the Kedusha Sin. His name is Reb Sin. he's known as the Kedusha Sin. And he said that uh, he wants to share with me the story that he heard from his father. He said, one day, a Jew comes into the Babiv Eruv, and he cries that he's very scared for his son's future. This is in the 1930s. So the Baba Virav, the Baba Virabba asks him, what's the problem? So he said he expected his son to be completely immersed in Torah. He was a Hasidic boy, a good Chasidish Ben Torah, Chasidish Bacharel. Instead, he sees that his son loves skiing. The words he used in Yiddish, speaking to the Baba Verov, is a hot libs glitchen of the schnee. He loves to uh, slide on the snow. And he's going to slip off the path. He wants to slip on the snow and he's going to slip off the derech. What they call today OTD. He's going to ski off the Jewish path. Take the wrong slope downhill. And he said, I don't know where it's going to end. Mela scheme, but I don't know where it's going to end. I want you should have one interest, and the interest is learning Torah all day and serving God and davening and being Oyved Hashem. And uh, I'm extremely, extremely scared who he's going to meet and what's going to happen. So the Baba Rebbe tells him, Shikem Tzamer, let me see your son, and I'll take care of him. Okay, the father leaves, goes home, he's going to send his son to the Baba Verebbe, and in the meantime, the Baba Verev, the Kedusha Siyan, instructs his Gabbai to go into the yeshiva, and summon one of the yeshiva boys in Baba, whose name was Yaakov Hersh. Yaakov Hersh was a Bacher, a student who was a big Talmud Chacham, very assiduous, very serious, very sincere, very dedicated to his learning, and he was a Masmid, Pashat, he loved, loved learning. He sat for hours, day and night, and he loved learning. There was nothing else in his life. He would eat, drink, sleep a little bit, and learn. That's what he did. Yaakov Hersh is surprised by this invitation. He comes into the Baba Verov, and the Rebbe tells him, Yaakov Hersh, Gay Laren, Glitchen of the Shnei. I want you to go master. The art of skiing. I want you to learn how to slide on the snow, literally. 
Yaakov Hersh was not just dumbfounded, he was startled. His Rebbe, the Baba Rebbe, has nothing better for him prepared than to go learn how to ski. So even though he was a bacher, and it wasn't comfortable for him, he said, uh, Rebbe, was for this megeben? I have no interest. Why, why should I learn this? So the Baba Verov said, Yaakov Hersh, it's coming. It's going to be beneficial for you. It's going to be of great benefit to you. Now it happens to be that the city of Babiv is located near the Carpathian Mountains on the border between Poland, Galicia, and Czechoslovakia. I don't know if anybody here skied on the Carpathian Mountains, but if you're planning a good ski trip, you may consider that. And Bobov is on that border with Czechoslovakia, so Yaakov Harish had great slopes to practice on. The Bobovirov told him in no time he was a serious student at Sidious. He was also potentially athletic. He learned the he mastered the sport and he became Mamish an expert skier. This Jew who came to complain to the Rebbe went home and sent his son to Babiv, to the Babiv Rebbe. The Babiv Rebbe took him into his yeshiva and took him, took him under his uh, tutelage and took him under his loving care, which he was very well known. The Babiv Rebbe, the Gdusha Siyan, was very well known for having a way of influencing the youth. He had a big yeshiva and he was very, he took a tremendous interest in all of the students like a father and a mentor, and a teacher, and he educated them, he refined them, he really mentored them, hundreds and hundreds of boys. He was well known for this before the war. And uh, this boy was now here in the yeshiva, and one day the Baba Virov calls Yaakov Hersh, the expert skier, and he tells him, I want you to take this boy and teach him how to ski. You're an expert. I want you to teach him how to become an expert skier. And when you're on the slopes, and when you're putting on the gear, and when you come down, and when you're going, and when you're coming, you'll also talk to him. You'll fabrain with him in learning, in chassidus, in your shabayim. And I want you to do this constantly, on a weekly basis. No, this kid fell in love with Babav. It was the best. He comes here, he gets free ski lessons by a master skier, and by the best bach in yeshiva too. Who took him to ski? The best boy, Yaakov Harish, was considered la creme de la creme. He loved it. He wasn't considered an outcast. He didn't have to do it clandestinely. It wasn't secret. It was done with, by Yaakov Harish, who was the best bocher. And the Rebbe, of course, was behind, behind the scenes. And the boy was a transformed boy because he loved skiing. And as a result, he loved the atmosphere. He loved the learning. He loved the davening. He loved the ambience. And... Uh, all was wonderful. There's just a second half to the story. It's not really the main point, but I think it's worth mentioning. Tragic and sad and heart-wrenching, but also uh, there were unique moments of grace, and every person who survived, even though so many didn't survive, and we, nobody knows why, but each one who did survive was a separate miracle, how they survived. During the war, as the Germans came in to Galicia, Galicia was decimated, as the rest of Poland. And Yaakov Hersh was uh, deported to one of the ghettos. 
And uh, it was a freezing cold winter in Eastern Europe during the war years. And he was with other Jews in one of the ghettos there by the Carpathian Mountains. And one of the days, the SS were in a particular mood of uh, sadism and barbarity. They were usually in a sadistic mood, but some days were more than others. So they decided to torture some of the Jews in the ghetto, and they took a group of Jews, and they took them up to a tall mountain. They were all thinly clothed. They barely had clothes and food. And uh, the mountain was full of snow and ice, and very dangerous. And they commanded them to slide down the mountain. Whoever didn't want, they pushed them. Most of them couldn't survive it. They didn't survive the ordeal, and they fell to their deaths. Yaakov Hersh was one of these Jews. Because of years and years of skiing, he knew how to maneuver himself somewhat to safety, and he was from the few who survived the ordeal. And he would repeat the story and say that when he was instructed to go skiing, his Rebbe, who didn't survive, was shot in the forest, told him, Yaakov Hersh, it's going to be a benefit for you. Now, if you think about this, here you have a classic situation of pedagogical sensitivity to a child. The Baba Virov could have told the father, you have to tell your son, this is not what a Jewish boy does. He doesn't ski. This is for the Gentiles. He could have done that. He probably knew the father would have lost his boy. So what did he do? Not only did he allow this boy to ski, he took the best boy of the yeshiva and turned him into a skier to be able to connect to this child on his terms, take him skiing, teach him how to ski, and when he saw who is the master of skiing, he looked up to him, not only in skiing, he looked up to him in everything else. And his life was transformed. The greatest gift in education is when somebody never ever becomes deaf to the true yearnings of a child and never decides that in the name of some abstract ideal which may be beautiful, they're going to cut off this child. I came here this morning for Shachris. He tells me, he's a teacher, and he says the classroom is crazy sometimes. So he went to Rabbi Yaakov Meir Shechte, who's a big breast of a leader, and he says, I'm a malamed and I don't know what to do. The kinder machem I don't know how to deal with it. So Rabbi Yaakov Meir Shechte, without skipping a hard speed, told him, Malamed, the word Malamed teaches Rosh Tevis, Mem Lamed Mem Dalet, Meshige Machen Zolen Zaydir. Right? They should make you crazy. What was he telling him? He was telling him that in life, a parent, a teacher, whatever it is, we go in with a certain frigid approach. If you fit, great. If not, we lose the plot. And when we lose the plot, we get angry, and we do foolish things that simply cuts down the person. Education, in its truest sense, is about a mysterious nefesh. It's about tuning my soul into the true needs of the other person. 
Of course, a teacher and a parent should make systems that they shouldn't make you sugar 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's no mitzvah to create a jungle. That's not what we're talking about. Children need discipline. Children need structure. Children need <coughs> cohesiveness. Children need patterns. But they need structures, laws, and patterns to be able to bring out the best in them, to be able to help them shine, to be able to help them blossom. Not laws and structures just to shut them up and repress them so that I should be able to feel good, because then what I'm doing essentially is I'm using laws and structures to abandon them, not to develop them. Real laws and structures are created out of attachment, not out of detachment. I attach myself to the person, and I'm sensitive to who the person really is, and how I could reach into their heart right now, and help them climb, help them grow from step to step to where they are capable of becoming. It's not about imposing a certain perspective, either you're in or you're out, because very often I lose the person. I'll tell myself for the rest of my life, I'm just. My conscience is clear. But deep down I know, because of my inability to expand my horizons and to think what God really wants for me, for this child... I abandoned the soul. The Baba Virav, the Kedusha Siyan, I can assume wasn't very into skiing. Just my speculation. <laughs> my speculation. But he understood. At this moment I have a child. This child's soul, you're going to find only on the slopes. That's where you're going to find this child's soul. You will not find it anywhere else. So you could say, I want to find your soul in the base Medrash. His soul will not be there. You could force him for a few weeks to come, and the first opportunity he'll run. If you go to the mountains with him, you'll find his soul. You'll connect to his soul. You'll find his soul on the slopes. In the middle of one of those slopes, that's where his nesham is. That's where he is, or that's where she is. Go there. Connect. Reach out. Be there with your soul. And then you will guarantee that the slopes for this child don't only go downwards, they also go upwards. Have a wonderful week. <clears throat> this class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.